This morning, and it's glad. I'm so so glad to have you here this morning. It's great to worship God, and it's it's great that the sun is is shining outside, but it doesn't always shine, does it? Yet He's still worthy to be praised. Sometimes our thoughts can get pretty negative. Sometimes it's not an easy thing to allow our circumstances to just take our thoughts lower and lower and deeper and deeper. 
And we know that our thoughts can affect, affect our actions, our attitudes, even the way that we live or the way that we treat each other. And I think Paul realized how important and how effective our thoughts can be when he told the Philippians, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So I'm challenging you this morning to elevate your thoughts. God is worthy of praise. God is excellent. And he is worthy to be adored and praised this morning and glorified. And I encourage you right now to just bless his name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, worship your to sing your song again whatever may pass and whatever lies before me let me be singing when the evening comes bless the Bless the Lord, oh my soul, 
Father, we thank you for giving us breath for today to praise you and to glorify your name. Lord, may not just our words that we sing praise you, but may our our lives also praise you and bless you. Lord, we ask right now at this time, as we dig into 1 Corinthians some more, that you would um, just clear things up for us, Lord. Um, reveal your purpose and your understanding to our hearts and to our minds, Lord, and open our eyes to see only the things that, that you see and that you want us to see, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is great to see you this morning. Been an eventful week. The, uh, the Belshans had their baby yesterday. Some of you know them. Baby's name is Clara, which indicates that it's a girl, and we're celebrating with them. She chose to be born in a great week. Last week was one of those landmark birthdays for me, uh, one of those decade ones. I won't tell you which. You can kind of look by, tell by looking. But anyway, um, my family decided to make it a little bit eventful and fun. So on my birthday, uh, we, we went, or around my birthday, we went shopping one day at Jewel, and um, we're kind of walking, walking around and and Kim was shopping uh, erratically. She was shopping in a way that I'm like, what? what's going on here? She's like picking for different things. And, you know, and then she goes to buy mascara. And she doesn't know where the mascara is. And I'm like, I know where the mascara is at Jewel. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. But I know. I know where these things are. And she's just kind of being erratic. I'm like, this is goofy. And then it happens. Would Dennis Pap please come to the customer service desk? I heard it, and I'm like, I am just going to choose to ignore what I just heard. And then it happened again, and now I can't ignore it. And, I, you know, my heart is like doing this. I can't even describe what was happening inside of me. But let's just say it was not good. It was not good at all. And so I'm walking up, and as we're walking, Kim goes, I, I just need to warn you. Shelly's been wanting to get you on what not to wear for a long time. And I'm like... That can't be it because I dress so well. It can't be it. So we get up to the desk and I told you a couple of weeks ago about my sister, Kathy, who likes to get lost in stores. Kathy was standing there. So came from New Jersey and we got to spend a few days together and that was a lot of fun. And then last night, our friends Ben and Crystal Mott came down so we could go out to dinner together and been a fun week. Had a lot of fun. So anyway, um, that's my week. How was yours? Yeah, okay, let's get on to the thing today. Today we are talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, As we move into this chapter in Corinthians, it provides us a a great opportunity to do some basic study in what's called hermeneutics. And you're kind of going, Herman who? Well, you know, who is that? Hermeneutics is the science of literary interpretation. You don't just do this with the Bible. You do this really with, with any classic document. And, and understanding the meaning of a document like the Bible, isn't, it's not just guesswork. It's not based primarily on impressions or feelings. The Bible doesn't mean something different to you than it does to me. The Bible has one meaning. Uh, there's a science behind it, a methodology, a framework of, of guidelines One of the most fundamental rules of interpreting the Bible, or any text for that matter, is something uh, called understanding the author's intent. 
E.D. Hirsch wrote a book called Validity and Interpretation. And he fought kind of a modernistic tendency that people say, I read a book and I decide what it means. It puts the author in the place of authority. So you could read something even like Tom Sawyer and just decide, I'm going to decide what I think this book meant. And people do that with the Bible. They import their meaning instead of looking for what the author intended. Well, in reality, the Bible has an original meaning. And it's the meaning that was intended by the writer. In this case, Paul, who was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we try to understand what he had to say. And that's what we've been doing so far with this letter. We're digging into history and trying to understand what was Paul saying to this early church. Now there's another rule that comes into play today. In 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to talk about a a topic that was very common in the time of Paul while he was alive. Remember last week, we said as we moved into this part of the letter that Paul was answering questions that the Corinthians were asking. They had actually written him a letter, and now he's responding to their questions. So as you come to the first verse of chapter 8, the Bible says, Now regarding your questions about food that has been offered to idols. Here's their basic question. They're saying, we're Christ followers. And as Christ followers, is it okay to eat meat offered to idols or is it forbidden? So I'm going to ask you a question right now. It's not intended to be a a trick question at all. Have any of you ever eaten meat that was originally offered to to an idol? Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah, now I'll I'll probe this a little bit. So you've walked into a Chinese restaurant, you've seen Buddha sitting there with the navel oranges in front of him, and you haven't touched those. You just left them alone. You've never eaten. Well, this is cool because what this does is buys us some time. We can just skip chapter 8 and move on to chapter 9 because none of us have ever done it, and the likelihood of us doing it in the future is very, very slim. Now, you know me. There's no way we're going to skip chapter 8. Why should we study chapter 8 if we've never done it and the likelihood is we will never eat meat offered to idols? Should we just do it for historical purposes to understand the history of the book? Or or do we do it just in case at some point in our lifetime we happen to be in a place that meat is offered to idols and we have to make this decision? We need to understand this. The Bible is written in the context of culture. Some people see that as the Bible's weakness. They see that as as the problem with the Bible. How can a book written 2,000 years ago in an ancient, eastern, agrarian society be relevant to us today? You know, John starts the Gospel of John with these words. He says, the Word, which is Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God actually became man. He didn't become like a man. God became man. The significance of this cannot be understated. Jesus didn't stay above us. He didn't stay above us and tell us the way to God. Jesus became one of us. And Jesus actually became the way to God. And that's huge. The same is true with this word, with the Bible. The Bible is not simply a a transcendent book somewhere up there speaking theory to us. And we kind of try to understand it that way. Not at all. It was written in the context of human culture. So humans could completely understand it and we could completely relate to it. Culture is not its weakness. 
Culture is God speaking our language. God is using our language so that we can understand what he has to say. The Bible is written over 2,000 years ago. Some people will ask, what's the relevance for us today? I wonder if the opposite had taken place. What if when Paul was writing, instead of writing from his own time, God had given him revelations of 2,000 years later? And so as he's writing this, this letter to the Corinthians, he's talking about cars and computers, restaurants and, and retail outlets. He's talking about Wrigley and Kaminsky. He's talking about all these different things. What if he had taken this someday approach? The people of Paul's times would have said, I what? I tune? iPod? iPad? I don't get it. What in the world are you talking about? They could not have related to it. The fact is, there was a time for writing that was chosen. And God chose to write in times past. When a book is used for thousands of years, there are going to be things written in the context of culture that are going to be confusing to us. And we have to dig into them. We have to understand it. God delivered his word in the moment. The time and times in which it was written. And we need to understand that time and those times. So what does that mean for those of us who, quite frankly, will probably never eat idol meat ever in our lives. It means that we have some work to do. We have some work to do. We need to do some digging in order to discover the timeless truth behind this event, behind this activity, the principle that's being taught in the text. What's the deeper meaning? You know, in a sense, it would be very simplistic for us to just say, never eat idol meat, never will, check, done, next. I mean, that'd be kind of legalistic because Paul is talking about something far broader, far greater than simply the kind of meat that you eat. As we dig into the passage, we'll learn that meat is simply the context or example that God uses to embed a timeless principle, a truth that can be understood in a number of contexts, not just eating meat to idols. So we're not safe today because we'll never eat idol meat. There are other ways that this applies very clearly to us. This timeless truth is universal. It applies to our year, to our time, to our culture. It has application in any time, in every era, in every generation. So in a sense, we all make the choice to eat my idol meat. We all, at some point or another, have to make this decision. We just don't realize that we do. God gives us guidelines to help us to be able to make wise decisions. Now, this chapter brings us back to a place we've been already. Several weeks ago, we looked at how to make wise choices. You may remember we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In that, Paul said this to the Corinthians. You say, he was quoting then, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though you say, and again he quotes them, I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You see, here's the thing. Some of the Corinthians, they were really abusing their freedom, and they were abusing grace. We'd refer to them as libertines. They held spiritual liberty as the highest value of all. We, we get in trouble when we decide to choose one value over another and say, this is the one that we're going to hold supreme, and we're going to kind of ignore all the others. They held liberty as the supreme value. They cared about their liberty, their right to do whatever they wanted to do, more than they cared about other people. It was supreme to them. They lived as if they were the only people on the planet. 
They lived individualistically, and they did not care how their decisions impacted anyone else. They celebrated liberty to the excess and to the extreme. Now, we have, all have moral choices to make, and some of them are easy. When it comes to yes and no, when God says this is right, this is wrong, those are easy choices. I mean, there's not a lot to debate. You go to Exodus 20, there's this list of 10 commandments. They're not 10 suggestions. They're not 10 ideals. They're commandments. And you either choose to do them or you choose not to do them. The Corinthians were not arguing that they had the freedom to break the Ten Commandments. When they said, I'm allowed to do anything or everything, they were not saying they had the freedom to murder or the freedom to steal. They got that. They agreed that God had rules. But they also had the understanding that God had not spoken in every area. God has not given instruction for any, everything that will ever happen on the face of the earth. Some of our toughest moral decisions are not decisions of right and wrong. They're they're wisdom decisions. The decisions of good, better, best. Those are really tough decisions. In the morning, uh, I drive Nate and Blake to school. We head over to uh, Manuka, the south campus there. And as I'm driving in, every day my blood pressure gets this fantastic workout. It's, just, it's amazing the way this works. You see, we, we pull in, and, and, and the administrators have set up a very clear drop-off process. They've got teachers standing there, and even a, even a policeman waving his arm, saying, go, go, move up, move this way. There's one teacher standing there. He's got the most well-exercised fingers in the planet. All he does is this. He does this, and he just keeps going like this. And you're supposed to go all the way up to where he is, which is way past the front door. But you know what a lot of people do? Oh, but my little prince, my little princess... That would be a long walk. I can't do that to them. And so what do they do? They stop right in front of the door. And there's this long line going all the way back out onto Route 6, waiting to drop off a kid. But prince and princess matter more than everyone else in the universe. Last week, I almost rear-ended somebody while this was going on. I'm not kidding. We're pulling up, and all of a sudden, the person goes, stopping here. This is where my child is going to come out of the car and grace the universe. I mean, I'm just like, I have, to, I have to pray after I drop off my child, asking God forgiveness for the many sins I've committed in those 45 seconds. It drives me nuts. makes me absolutely crazy. Um, now, when you look at this, honestly, I, you know, you could ask the question, are they living immorally? In my opinion, yes. But no, what they're doing is pulling up and dropping off. And it's not a moral violation in the strictest sense. What it demonstrates is a lack of courtesy, a lack of community, a lack of paying attention to anyone else in the universe outside of themselves and their family and their needs and their wants. They just don't care about anyone else. Might seem like a, a strange illustration, but I hope it helps. Many of the toughest moral decisions we make are not the tough decisions of right and wrong. They're the decisions of good, better, and best. Not only what's best for us, but what's best for someone else as well. What's best for the people around us, not just me. So Paul gives us some guidelines for making wise decisions. We see two of them. We saw them already when we looked at chapter 6. He said, you say I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is good for you. I mean, there are a lot of things where you are allowed right now to go to McDonald's and buy 25 Big Macs and eat them in 10 minutes. You can do it. But 
it would definitely fall in the category of not good for you, which you'll find out about 10 minutes after eating all those Big Macs. He, he goes on to say, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but I must not become a slave to anything. Some of the things we partake in become addictive. And, and Paul says, when it becomes addictive, it's a problem because the only one I'm supposed to be a slave to is Jesus. The only person that's supposed to control my life is the Holy Spirit. No substance, no activity should have that kind of control over me. The action may not be forbidden, but is it good for me? The action may not be forbidden, but is it addictive? Well, in chapter 8, he gives us yet another guideline. He asks this question, basically. The action may not be forbidden by God, but how does it impact others? How does the decision I'm making impact other people in my life? You know, I'm, I'm a believer. I really am in the good old American concept of rugged individualism. I believe in it. I, I love that. Do your best. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It, it's a concept that made America great. Having said that, that concept can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. We become so individualistic that we start to espouse the unhealthy idea that we are the only people to look out for. It's all about number one. Nobody else. It's all about me. And I don't care about anyone else in the universe. Community is important. Community matters. We don't live in isolation. We live around other people. We are not islands. No man is. I'm not alone in this world. My actions and my decisions, everything I do, doesn't just impact me, but it impacts others. And the way that it impacts them is a moral decision. It's an issue of good, better, or best. As Christ followers, we can be uh, a little bit too individualistic at times, just looking out for ourselves. We look out for what is, what is best for us with little impact on how it impacts the community, how it impacts the church around me. You know, I've laid out this question in the past. I think it's a a great standard for living in community. Just look at it. It says, if everyone was doing what I am doing, how would we be doing? This is a great measure for what it means to be a church. And if everybody was attending the way I am, serving the way I am, giving the way I am, compassionate the way I am, how would we be doing as a group? Not just how am I doing, but how are we doing in light of that? In chapter 8, Paul asks some questions of wisdom decisions. He, you may, he may state it this way. If I do whatever I want to do without thinking about the impact on others, how would everybody else be doing? If I only look out for me, how would other people be doing? Paul uses a term in this passage that we need to get real familiar with. Uh, he refers to the weaker one. In fact, you see it in different ways in different translations. He might say weaker one, weaker brother and sister. The New Living Translation even chooses uh, the weaker conscience as the way to refer to it. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. He uses that term or variation of it several times in this chapter. Look at verse 11. He says, so because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. We make wisdom decisions. We make these moral decisions based on what is good for others, not just what is good for us. So is it good for me? Is it addictive? 
And then finally, how does it impact the people around me, my brother or sister who might be weaker in their faith? This is the timeless principle embedded in this idea of eating meat that we would have missed if we just went and skipped to chapter 9. That's the timeless truth that is embedded in this action. The truth is our decisions always have the, uh, the potential of impacting someone who is not in the same spiritual place that we are. And there are people that are not in the same spiritual place that you are. They haven't grown as far as you. And we need to think about the way our decisions will impact them. He uses this food illustration to get across this timeless truth. So what's the big deal? Why, why should we care about the meat? What's, what's going on there? Um, we've talked many times about the fact that, that the Corinthian church is composed of Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. The Gentiles, prior to Christianity, were idol worshipers. Uh, we've made this point numerous times. We've talked about their idol worship. Corinth is a, a major Greek city, and it's home to the worship of many idols in the time of Paul. Aphrodite and Apollo, Poseidon and Isis are, are just some of the many that were worshipped. In fact, so that no one would be left out, they had one temple called the Pantheon. Theon is the word for God, and Pan is the word for many. Many gods. It was, it was their basically miscellaneous temple. If, if we didn't cover you in one of the others, you're covered over here. They didn't want to offend any of the gods. Everybody was covered along the way. Now, this image shows the, the remains of the temple of Apollo. And you've come to recognize by now that mountain in the background, that's the Acrocorinth. And all the way to the far left of your screen, that's the remains of the temple of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite's temple was up there and a number of other temples of worship. Worship of idols involved sacrifices. It involved animal sacrifices. The meat was offered to an idol. And, you know, we get this. The idol's made of stone. The idol couldn't eat the meat. So the, the sacrifice was done, and what they do next, instead of simply wasting the meat, they'd take that meat off to the market, and they'd sell it for a profit. So here you have a layout, a basic layout of the central area of the city of Corinth. I'll circle for you, um, that's the Temple of Apollo. So that's the image that you just saw, the Temple of Apollo. And down below is this area called the Agora or Agora. You can choose whichever way you want to go. The Agra is, um, it's kind of, it's the center of life in Corinth. It's kind of uh, Corinth's Woodfield Mall. Everything's going on in that place. And I'm going to remove the circles now that you've had a chance to, to see them, just so that you can see the overall layout. As you look down at that Agora, I'm going to underline an area for you right along the bottom. These are all shops. So as you're walking along, you have all these different places that you can go ahead and shop as you're walking through the Agora in Corinth. They would take meat from Apollo's temple and from the other temples in the area and bring them over to those shops, and from there, they'd go ahead and sell the meat. Now, the Corinthian church shopped right there at those shops. They didn't have like a a Christian meat market. They, they shopped right along with everybody else. So as they're going along, they have one of two reactions. Some of the people would look and say, meat is meat. I'm buying some. It looks good. Looks like great meat. Other Christians would look and they'd say, that meat was offered to an idol. I can't eat that meat. It was used in pagan worship. And the prophets go to support pagan worship. And so they said, there's no way that I can eat that. Now note this. There's no biblical command that says you can't eat the meat. 
And there's no biblical command that says you have to eat the meat. It's an area of freedom, a wisdom decision. So let's go ahead and break this down from the chapter. First of all, Paul defends the person who wants to eat the meat. In chapter 1, verse 4, he, chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, forget the reference. Anyway, um, I think that should be 8. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god. There is only one real God. So argument number one in defense of eating the meat, an idol isn't a God. He even uses a little G. Uh, This is no God at all. There is only one true God. So go ahead and do what you want. You see, this person is strong enough in belief and in conscience to say it's good meat. Who cares where it's been? I'm going to go ahead and eat it. Paul continues this line of reasoning in verses 5 and 6. He says, there may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth. Again, notice the little g. And some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything. And we live for him. There is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. There is no such thing as a God other than the true and living God. So eat up. Eat all the meat you want. You like ribeyes? Go nuts. Eat what you want, Paul is saying to those people. He references, in fact, their knowledge a few times. In fact, he calls it their their superior knowledge because they view themselves to, to know a little bit more than everyone else in the room. There's always someone that thinks they know more than everyone else in the room. The same was true in Corinth. He said, now... Regarding your questions about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. He puts that in quotes. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. In verse 10, once again, he references this idea of their superior knowledge, their superiority to others. In these verses, what happens, you you can start to feel Paul starting to shift the argument away from the meat-eaters and toward the non-meat-eaters. He agrees with the meat-eaters. He says, hey, I know what you know. An idol is not God. It's just meat, so go ahead and eat it. But then in verse 7, this is what he says. However... Not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to think of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated by that. I mean, just look at that first line again. Not all believers know this. He says, some people aren't where you are, at least not yet. And you need to take those people into consideration. Maybe they're new believers. Maybe they're people who still have friends caught up in the pagan idol worship. And they they mourn for their salvation. Maybe they were deeply entrenched in that system at one time as well. The reason is not as relevant as the reality. They still perceive the idol to be a god. And that meat, in their view, is tainted by the way it's been used. In verse 8, he he even goes back and and defends the meat eaters. He says, it's true 
that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. And we don't gain anything if we do. He says, I get it. You get it. But they don't get it. At least not yet. So let's respect them. So what am I going to do? What should I do? I want to jump to the conclusion. Paul's conclusion is beautiful. He speaks for himself. In verse 13, this is what he says. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. Will you look at that line? I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Talk about extreme sacrifice. I mean, Paul's ready to be a voluntary vegetarian. He's saying, I am willing to do anything I have to, to make sure that a weaker brother or sister has the chance to continue to grow in their faith and doesn't allow this to be the thing that blocks them from further growth. Paul says love trumps knowledge. Love trumps everything when we live in community. I remember what he said in verses 1 and 2. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. And so we don't make the decision just based on what we want or what is good for us, but we make the decision lovingly based on what is best for the people around us. You see, uh, when it comes down to it, I should care more about you than me. I should care about you more than me. I should care about your spiritual health more than my right to a ribeye. I care more that you grow than that I get to do whatever I please. That's what a really mature believer does. In verses 9 to 12, he lays out his rationale. In verse 9, he says, But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Yes, in in my conscience, Paul says, I'm free to eat meat. I can do this. Morally, I am free to do so. But my exercise of freedom may be a bump in the spiritual road for someone else. So I don't just plow ahead because I have the right to do it. I actually have the sensitivity to figure out where they are first. I think about how my decision will impact someone else. It saddens me that sometimes we are far more American than we are Christian. We care a lot about our rights. I have the right to do whatever I want. You know what the Bible says? We have the right to care about other people. We have the right to put people above ourselves. That's what it means to be a true Christ follower. In verse 10, Paul says, For if others see you with your superior knowledge, again, he puts it in quotes, eating meat in the temple of an idol. So this is another way they took partook of the meat, not just buying it in the marketplace, but sometimes you could actually go to the temple and have a feast right there. And he says, if someone sees you doing that, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? Paul says that the non-meat eater may see me partaking and in the process rationalize eating it. They may say, hey, Dennis is doing it. And even though they're still of the conviction that it's wrong, they'll go ahead and do it because they see what I'm doing. If they imitate my, my behavior, even though their convictions are firmly against it. This idea of uh, violating one's conscience is really interesting. I, again, I want to say morally, there's no question. There is black and right, white, right and wrong, commands that are written in stone and are written on paper. That's not what we're talking about here today. 
Besides this, there are times that our conscience will hold us back from doing something. Or our conscience will give us freedom to do something. Now, our conscience is formed by many factors. Nature and nurture, experiences and events all come into play to form our conscience. And our conscience is not the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit influences our conscience. The Holy Spirit lets us know what we should do if we're truly sensitive to him. So there may be times that while something is not written as right or wrong, the Spirit may direct me to do something, or the Spirit may impress on me that I shouldn't do something, and I need to listen to the Spirit. The the, the interesting part is that in this way, it may actually be right for me to do something and wrong for you to do it or wrong for you to do something, or right for me to do it. Now again, um, I'm not talking about God's written instructions of right and wrong. You may find yourself saying, my conscience says it's okay to commit adultery. So what? The Ten Commandments say don't. You may think, "Uh, my conscience says it's okay to murder my boss. That is a hardened, seared conscience. That's not a conscience that's sensitive to the spirit. We're talking about something very different here. We're talking about these areas of freedom where sometimes the Spirit will say, go ahead. And sometimes the Spirit will say, don't do that. A newer believer is learning the moral ropes. There will be things early in their faith that they're going to be learning. And they're going to be saying, this is right or this is wrong. And a lot of times it's based on their past behavior prior to when they were believers. There are things that they did, things that they participated in prior to being a believer. And now that they are a believer, to do the same thing would cause them to feel like they're sinning. God has not given them the freedom of conscience yet to go ahead and do those things. Paul says we'd better tread very carefully if we're going to violate the conscience of another believer. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. Take those words very seriously. This isn't just somebody has an opinion and you feel like they're kind of cramping your style or something. It is possible that us going ahead and doing whatever we want will actually cause someone's faith to be shipwrecked. They will stop growing because of what we're doing. He goes on to say, and when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. He says you're not just sinning against your brother or sister. You're sinning against Jesus himself. I don't know about you, those two things, those are serious. Those are things I do not want to do. Paul concludes this part of his reasoning, again with verse 13. Beautiful verse. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. I love this part about Paul. Jesus matters too much to him to say... I'm going to do no matter whatever I want to do, no matter what you think. I'm just going to plow ahead. Jesus matters too much to him. Further, other people matter too much to him for him to just go ahead and do whatever he wants. Paul really got it. Paul understood it's not about me. It's about us. It's about we. I care about more than just myself. I care about the way my decisions impact the people around me. We don't just live ourselves. We live for Jesus and we live for others. And we take all of that into consideration when we're making wisdom decisions. Time is running out. 
Paul continues this theme in chapters 9 and 10, and we're going to look at it again next week. In fact, he gives us another standard by which to make these wisdom decisions. We'll see that next week. But for this week, I want, you to, I want you to take what we've learned, and I want you to just start to ask yourself a question. I want you to probe this. And I'm not giving you, I'm purposely not giving you uh, examples today, modern examples of idle meat. Because I want the Spirit to talk to you about this, and not just Dennis lists three or four things, and you go, oh, I'm safe, good, don't have to worry about that. I want the chance for the Spirit to talk to you about this, because He's the one that informs our conscience. So there's, there's a question that I want you to be asking yourself, and I'll give it to you in two different forms. Is there anything in my life that I'm unwilling to give up that might hinder someone else's growth? Is there something I do? Is there something I embrace that may actually be hindering someone else from growing? And if that's the case, do you find yourself saying, I'd give it up in a heartbeat if I knew that was the case, or over my dead body, I'm an American, I can do whatever I want, and nobody's going to tell me. Where are you with that? Maybe another way to put it, is there any activity or substance that I hold more dearly than the soul of another person? Do I find myself caring more about the freedom I have to do what I want than the soul of another individual? This... This is what Christian community is all about right here. This is, this is the bottom line of Christian community. I care more about you than I do about me. I care more that you keep growing than that I get to do whatever I want. A truly mature believer in every area will join with Paul in saying, so if what I, you can fill in the blank, so if what I eat or do causes another believer to sin, I will never do it again for as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. I care too much about you to do whatever I want, even if I have the right to do it. Let's talk to God. Father, these are, um, these are tough words for our ears. Because we've been raised to believe that we should, we should look out for us. The most important person in my life is me. And if I don't look out for me, nobody else will, so I better get mine. And and you structured your church in such a way, this community of believers, that you said, no, the, the prime thing that matters is that you look next to you. Not that you're afraid of getting caught, but you look next to you to find out how is my impact, am I always my action impacting the person next to me? Primarily the person that may not be where I am yet. The person that may not have grown to the point that I have yet. And we care more about that newer believer. We care more about that person with the weaker conscience than we do about exercising our freedom with boldness. God, I pray that this week your spirit would reveal to us perhaps areas in which we've said, I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what. And we'd ask you to forgive us for that. And we would release to you those things that we hold on to more dearly than caring about the soul of another individual. Thank you for caring for us enough to die for us. If you were willing to give your life for us, certainly we can give up some things in our lives in order that others have a chance to grow closer to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our servers are going to come right now and and give us communion. We have a single tray that will come to you. It has bread in the middle and cups around the side. Take the bread and eat it right away as the symbol of your relationship with Jesus.
And then from there, take the cup and hold it, and we'll take that together as a symbol of the relationship that we all have together uh, with Jesus, with God through Jesus.
Lord Jesus, this cup is a symbol of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, a sacrifice that we could never repay. And so in the process of sacrificing for others, we're not looking in some way to pay for our sins. We're looking to live out your example. If you are so selfless to give up your life, we want to be willing to give up anything in order to see another person come to know you, in order to see someone else grow in you. I pray that you would plant in us your spirit of selflessness, um, that, that willingness, like Paul was willing, to do anything in order to reach someone, in order to help someone else to grow more like Jesus. We pray this in your name, Jesus, and we love you. Amen. Our servers will come right now and, and collect the offering. Make sure you put your card in there at that time. And uh, while they're doing that, I have a, an announcement to share with you, and I have a little test for you to kind of help you to know whether or not you need to listen. This coming week, it's going to rain all week long. If that makes you sad, depressed, and, and you just really don't like that concept, you can tune out right now. If, on the other hand, you are thrilled that it's going to rain because you know how much the ground needs the water and you're so excited about the plants that you'll have in July because of the rain that's coming this coming week, this announcement is for you. So the rest of you, take a little rest. The song is coming soon. We have a garden right at the end of the street. As you're driving out, you turn out on, on Sioux Drive. It becomes Dove. You see the, the sign out there on our property. We, a few years ago, started a community garden. It's a place for you to be able to go ahead and you plant a 10 by 10 plot. Now, you, for some of you, you may live in an apartment or condo and you're not able to you know, plant whatever you want. For some of you, you've always wanted to grow something big, long, and, and you just don't have enough space in your yard. We have space for you. So if you want to go ahead and take advantage of that this coming year, make sure you can tell me on the way out the door. It's also been on your card and it'll be there for the next couple of weeks. But if that's something that you're thinking, yeah, I'd love to get involved in that this coming year. It's for you to be able to go ahead and grow stuff for you. What we've generally done on top of that is, you know, it never fails when you're growing a garden. There's always excess. And in the process of the excess, it's nice to be able to give that away to other people who need it. So if you're interested in that, make sure you sign up or say something to me. Now the rest of you can wake up and we'll go ahead and stand and let's sing as we close.
next week.